Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, I'll tell you now, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. So, let's start off with, uh, unfortunately, an obituary. This is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, May 8, 2023. Michael Berman, major force for state, pol- uh, state Democrats, expert on campaigns and redistricting shaped generations of California politics by Melanie Gutierrez. Michael Berman, who shaped California politics for generations as the mastermind of L.A.'s vaunted Berman-Waxman political machine, died Friday. He was 75. Berman burst onto the political scene before he was old enough to vote, running Henry Waxman's first campaign for the state legislature in 1968 and helping unseat Democrat Lester A. McMillan, who had represented the West Side for 26 years. But it wasn't his age or the long-shot win that earned Berman notice. It was his new approach, devising a plan with UCLA sociologist Howard Allenson to harness demographic data to target where campaign mailers should be sent for maximum impact. Those micro-targeted mailers forever changed how races are won in California and remain the standard political operating procedure. Berman used the same approach to carry his brother Howard Berman to the state legislature in 1972 over another longtime incumbent. When Michael Berman remained behind, while Michael Berman remained behind the scenes, his methods propelled Howard Berman and Waxman to the top of the political firmament and kept them there for decades. The Waxman-Berman machine, as the trio would, be begrud- would begrudgingly be known, became a powerful force that helped elect a network of allies who wielded enormous influence in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. I have very little doubt that without his and his colleague Howard Ellenson's effort, I would not have ever been elected to office, said Howard Berman, who spent a decade in the California Assembly and 30 years in Congress. I would probably be a labor lawyer. Howard Berman said his younger brother was happy to stay out of the spotlight and away from cameras. He was known for working relentlessly to the point of being described often in news stories as disheveled. I think it's fair to say he was not interested in the public part of this, Howard Berman said Sunday. The Bermans grew up in a Beverlywood, in Beverlywood, a middle-class, heavily Jewish neighborhood. Michael Berman attended Hamilton High School, where he organized a chapter of the Young Democrats. He then attended UCLA, but left before graduating to work on campaigns. In the late 1960s, he, he thought of using the idea of using personalized computer letters to the voters individually to make an argument. Why should they support the candidate he was backing, said Waxman, who was one of the nation's most powerful and prodigious liberal lawmakers until his retirement in 2014. That meant the campaign wouldn't send mailers blindly, Waxman said, but instead would appeal to teachers and homeowners and others concerned about very specific issues. In the 1970s and 80s, Michael Berman was the go-to expert in redistricting the once-in-a-decade process of creating new political maps after each census. He was instrumental in mapping congressional districts that helped uh, Democrats expand their majority. Those methods were not met without controversy. 
Critics said Berman's strategies manipulated political levers to create safe congressional districts for allies at the cost of fair representation for his constituents. Friends said Berman was a brilliant and blunt Democratic consultant. He was decades ahead of his time, said Bert Margolin, a former member of the California Assembly who, whom Michael helped elect in 1982. In the 70s and late 60s, he was doing things that no one else in politics did. It wasn't just that he was a political genius, he also had a work ethic, the likes of which I have never seen. Berman ran political campaigns with the same shrewd maneuvering that he brought to the blackjack table said former California Democratic Party chair John Burton. He was good enough to be banned from a lot of casinos, Burton said Sunday. Burton said casinos assumed that Berman was uh, counting cards, adding that he could calculate and machinate things in ways that the rest of us couldn't be, uh, begin to fathom. When Burton's brother, Representative Philip Burton, died on, in 1983, Berman called to ask what he could do. John Burton said he began to talk about political strategies for, for Sarah Burton to take her late husband's seat. He said, oh, no, no, I'm, I mean, I can, do, I can do anything for Sarah, not politics. But is there anything she needs? Burton said. This, that was the side of Michael that people didn't really see, that sensitivity. Berman's legacy, Burton said, will forever be ingrained in the changes he made in California politics. There's no way to, to trace it all back to him. There's no way there's no way to trace it all back to him, Burton said, but we know. That was Michael Berman, Major Force for State Democrats by Melanie Gutierrez from the California section of the Los Angeles Times Monday, May 8, 2023. Time stuff writer Mark Mark C. Barabak and Seema Mehta contributed to this report. Okay, now we're going, going to a, an article from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, May 8, 2023. Yellen sees chaos if debt limit isn't raised. There are no good options if Congress fails to act, Treasury Secretary says, by Zeke Miller. Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen said Sunday that there are no good options for the United States to avoid an economic calamity if Congress fails to raise the nation's borrowing limit of $31.38 trillion in the coming weeks. She did not rule out President Biden bypassing lawmakers and acting on his own to try to avert a first-ever federal default. Her comments added even more urgency to a high-stakes meeting Tuesday be between Biden and congressional leaders from both parties. Democrats and Republicans are, not, are at loggerheads over whether the debt limit should even be the subject of negotiation. GOP lawmakers, led by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, are demanding uh, spending cuts in return for raising the, the borrowing limit, while Biden has said the threat of default shouldn't be used as leverage in budget talks. Yellen interviewed on ABC's This Week painted a dire picture of what might happen if the borrowing limit is not increased before the Treasury Department runs out of what it calls extraordinary measures to operate under the current cap. That time, she said, is expected to come in early June, perhaps as soon as June 1st. Whether it's defaulting on interest payments that are due on the debt or payments for Social Security recipients or to Medicare providers, we, could, we would simply not have enough cash to meet all of our obligations, she said. 
and it's widely agreed that financial and economic chaos would ensue. An inc increase in the debt limit would not authorize new federal spending. It would allow borrowing to pay for only what Congress has already approved. Biden's White House meeting with McCarthy, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, will be the first substantive talks between Biden and McCarthy in months. House Republicans on April 26 passed a bill that would raise the debt limit but impose significant spending cuts. But those cuts are unlikely to win the support of all Republicans in the Democratic-controlled Senate, and Biden has said he will negotiate about government spending only once Congress takes the risk of default off the table. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, an independent who left the Democratic Party in December, encouraged Biden and McCarthy to speak to meet each other halfway. There's not going to be just a simple, clean uh, debt limit. The votes don't exist for that, she told CBS's Face the Nation. So, so the sooner these two guys get in, get in the room and listen to what the, the other, other one needs, the more likely they are, going to, they are to solve this challenge and protect the full faith and credit of the United States of America. Yellen was asked on ABC whether Biden could bypass Congress by signing the Constitution's 14th Amendment that the validity of U.S. debt shall not be questioned. Yellen did not answer definitively, but said uh, it should not be considered a valid solution. We should not get to the point where we need to uh, consider whether the president can go on issuing debt. This would be a constitutional crisis, she said. What to do if Congress fails to meet its responsibility? There are simply no good options, she said. Senator James Lankford, Republican of Oklahoma, agreed about the risks of involving the 14th Amendment. He told, the ABC, he told ABC that the Constitution is very clear that spending all those details around spending and money actually has to come through Congress. He criticized Biden for not being willing to negotiate on spending cuts, arguing that debt limit exists to force a broader conversation on government outlays. It's not it's about not just it's about not just debt that's incurred, the senator said, but it's also raising the limit of what we can continue to be able to add on this. The fourteenth Amendment question was studied by Obama administration lawyers during the twenty eleven debt limit showdown, which informed Biden's uh, refusal to negotiate now with Republicans on raising the debt limit. At the time, of, at the time, Justice Department lawyers said they did not believe the president had the unilateral power to issue new debt. Biden, in an interview with MSNBC on Friday, was asked about the 14th Amendment proposal, saying, I have not gotten there yet. Representative Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, and the committee's top Democrat, Representative Jim Himes of Connecticut, told CNN that the debt poised a national security threat. The Russians and the Chinese could seek to exploit it, Himes said. The United States has never really come close to defaulting on its debt before, so it's hard for us to imagine what that might look like. Turner argued that Biden would bear the brunt of the responsibility. I think if the president fails to negotiate with Congress and has continued out-of-control spending, that threatens our economy that it is a national security threat, he said. 
that was Yellen sees chaos if debt limit isn't raised by Zeke Miller from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times Monday, May 8, 2023. Miller writes for the Associated Press. All right, now let's bring you up to speed on our senior U.S. Senator, Dianne Feinstein. This first one is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. Out for weeks, Feinstein heads back to Senate. Absence because of shingles has held up Biden's judicial nominees and spurred calls for resignation by Melanie Mason, Benjamin Oreskes, and Kwasi Giyampi Asidu. Senator Dianne Feinstein flew back to Washington on Tuesday, but spokesman said after her extended absence due to the shingles virus threatened to derail Senate Democrats' agenda. The uh, senator's absence caused mounting, uh, caused mounting heartburn for the Democratic majority, which has few votes to spare to confirm President Biden's cabinet and judicial nominees, as well as potential legislation to avert a default on the national debt. Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, said in a statement that after talking with Feinstein several times in recent weeks, it's clear she's back where she wants to be and ready to deliver for California. I'm glad that my friend Diane is back in the Senate and ready to roll up her sleeves and get to work, he added. The San Francisco Chronicle reported that Feinstein, who had been convalescing in the Bay Area since mid-February, boarded a charter plane Tuesday to return to the Senate. Adam Russell, a spokesman for the Democratic Senator, confirmed she arrived in the Washington area Tuesday evening, but declined to comment further. Feinstein, 89, has contended with questions about her health and ability to serve for several years, and her slow recovery from the shingles virus and related complications led some Democrats, including Representative Ro Khanna, Democrat of Fremont, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, to call for her resignation. On Tuesday, Kana said he was glad to hear of Feinstein's return and he was hopeful that she would be able to, to fulfill her duties. The people of California deserve strong representation and a senator who can vote to advance President Biden's judicial nominees and protect America's uh, fundamental rights. The three-month absence hurt our, uh, our agenda and time will tell on the future, Kana said. Feinstein has missed nearly 80 votes this year, according to ProPublica, the most of any senator. Her absence has been keenly felt on the Senate Judiciary Committee, where without Feinstein, Democrats needed at least one Republican vote to advance Biden's nominations for federal judges. As outcry grew about her absence, Feinstein asked for another Democrat to temporarily uh, be appointed to the uh, panel to in, place, uh, in her place. Republicans rejected that effort. The blockade threatened to stymie Biden's rapid clip of securing judicial co uh, confirmations, which Carl Tobias, a professor of law at Univer the University of Richmond, called the best-kept secret around. He said Biden has been open on his goal of appointing judges that would offset the conservatives confirmed under former President Trump. He pledged he would counter that and he has, Tobias said. In a statement last week, Feinstein responded to critiques that she was causing a backlog for the Judiciary Committee and said she would be returning to Washington without specifying a timeline. Her Democratic colleagues in the Senate had mostly demurred on weighing on whether on what uh, she should do, 
although there were some flashes of anxiety as the weeks progressed. I want to treat Diane Feinstein fairly. I want to be sensitive to her family situation and her personal situation, and I don't want to say that she's going to be put under more pressure than others have been in the past, Senator Richard J. Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, said Sunday at CNN. But the bottom line is, the business of the committee and of the Senate is affected by her absence. With Feinstein's return to the Senate, Democrats will have an 11-10 edge on the Judiciary Committee, enabling Biden's nominations to progress to the full Senate without needed, needing a GOP vote. The committee is due to meet Thursday to consider nominations to the federal bench. The cross-country trip Tuesday may also serve to dampen growing complaints about a lack of transparency from Feinstein's office on details about her medical condition. Last week, her staff declined to give the Times a report or an interview from her doctor. Indivisible California, a progressive group, issued a, call, a letter calling on Feinstein to resign because of her absence. Representatives were invited to a Zoom call with Feinstein's staff last week, which they said was devoid of specifics about her condition. Patty Crane, a member of Indivisible South Bay LA chapter who participated in the call, said Feinstein's trip back to Washington was a positive development. We're just thrilled that she was that she's well enough to climb on that chartered plane and get to Washington, Crane said. It's great that she's been eating her Wheaties and she's been uh, and and is healthy and robust so she can keep fighting for California. Still, some progressives say they continue to have concerns about the senator's health. Amy Allison, founder and president of She the People, an advocacy group pushing for more women of color to hold elected office, called for assurances that the senator will be able to fully represent our state and carry out the duties of her position. Senator Feinstein's absence has made the work of ensuring the best for our state and country more difficult. And we hope that her return is one that we can count on. If not, it is time for us to have a necessary discussion about the future of the California Senate seat, said Allison, who is backing Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of Oakland, in next year's race to succeed Feinstein. The senator is not seeking re-election. Two of the Democrats vying for the Senate seat, Representative Adam B. Schiff of Burbank and Representative Katie Porter of Irvine, said they welcomed Feinstein's return. Lee could not be reached for comment. The sentiment was echoed by California's junior senator, Alex Padilla, who said he knew Feinstein was eager to return to continue our important work. The Senate contest, which began in earnest even before Feinstein announced in February she would not run again, has, had also been affected by the uncertainty over her health. The lengthy absence had set off fresh speculation about what would happen if Feinstein could not complete her final term. and. Uh, whom Governor Gavin Newsom would appoint to fill her seat. Newsom, who had committed to appointing a black woman to the Senate if he had the opportunity, said Feinstein's health trouble set off a huge, uh, set off a deluge of questions about what he could do. Emails, calls, texts, people stopping me. I'm not kidding. This is one of the biggest topics here, Newsom said in a television interview last week. His office declined to comment on her return to Washington. That was out for weeks. Feinstein heads back to Senate by Melanie Mason, Benjamin Oreskes, and Kwasi Giampi Asidu from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, May 10, 2020.
23. All right, here is a follow-up article from the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, May 11, 2023. Feinstein is back in Capitol voting in Senate. Lawmaker says she still has health issues after weeks away will get a lighter schedule by Alexandra E. Petrie. Senator Dianne Feinstein returned to the Capitol on Wednesday to cast her first vote in the Senate since taking an extended illness-related absence that threatened Democrats' slim majority and led to mounting calls for her resignation. Feinstein, who at 89 is the eldest sitting senator, was brought onto the Senate floor in a wheelchair that she many at times required to travel around the Capitol as she worked a lighter schedule, her office said in a statement. Videos on Twitter showed Feinstein emerging from a car outside the Senate building where she was helped uh, into a wheelchair and greeted by Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York. Offering her a most detailed description yet of her health problems since she took leave in February to be treated at a San Francisco hospital for shingles, Feinstein said in the statement that she's made some significant progress but still is experiencing some side effects, including vision and balance issues. Before Feinstein's return to Washington on Tuesday, her team faced growing complaints from colleagues about a lack of transparency on the senator's condition. Last week, her staff declined to give the Times a report or interview from her doctor. For months, her absence and the lack of details on her return frustrated many Democratic lawmakers and activists especially those concerned about the slow pace at which the Senate uh, was confirming President Biden's nominees for the judi federal judiciary. Without Feinstein, the Judiciary Committee, uh, Committee, which holds confirmation hearings for federal judges and advances its recommendations to the full Senate, was split evenly with 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans. The committee most recently approved a judicial nominee two weeks ago with the support of some Republicans. It will meet Thursday to consider more nominations and legislation. I have returned to Washington and am prepared to resume my duties in the Senate, Feinstein said Wednesday. The Senate faces many important issues, but the most pressing is to ensure our government doesn't default on its financial obligations. I also look forward to resuming my work on the Judiciary Committee, uh, uh, considering the President's judicial nominees. My doctors have advised me to work a lighter schedule as I return to the Senate. I'm hopeful those issues will subside as I continue to recover, she said, thanking her well-wishers and her team of doctors in San Francisco. Feinstein did not provide more details on which duties could be trimmed from her schedule. Her first vote back was to confirm a Department of Education nominee. Feinstein was briefly hospitalized in San Francisco in February because of the shingles virus and said she had hoped to be back in Washington by late March, but she remained at home in recovery. Feinstein worked while she recuperated, and her spokesperson Adam Russell said that at the time, but she could not cast a vote without being on the Senate floor or in committee, complicating the confirmation, com, uh, confirmation of Biden's judicial and administrative nominees. Her absence eventually led to an outcry from some corners of the Democratic Party for Feinstein to step aside, including Representative Rokana, Democrat of Fremont, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New, of New York. As pressure built for her to resign, 
Feinstein had asked for another Democrat to temporarily be appointed to the Judiciary Panel, but Republicans rejected that effort. She quickly responded to critiques about the disruptions to the committee's work by saying she would return to Washington, but she didn't spe uh, specify a timeline. Feinstein has contended with questions about her health and ability to serve for several years, including concerns about whether she was up for the mental rigor of high-profile positions. She said she will not run for re-election next year, but plans to fulfill her term, which, it, which ends in early 2025, then retire. That was Feinstein is back in Capitol voting in Senate by Alexandra E. Petri from the Los Angeles Times Thursday, May 11, 2023. Time staff writers Melanie Mason, Benjamin Oresket, and Kwasi Giyami Asidu contributed to this report. All right, and we have one final one here from the Los Angeles Times Friday, May 12, 2023. Welcomed by Helping Hands. Feinstein requires some assistance on a return to D.C. after illness by Benjamin Oreskes and Noah Bierman, Washington. An hour into a Senate Judiciary hearing on Thursday, California Senator Dianne Feinstein was wheeled into the chamber by a staff member. She grabbed his arm tightly to steady herself as she rose to her feet and received a standing ovation after she made the short walk to her seat. The San Francisco Democrats' first day back at the Judiciary Committee after an extended absence recuperating from shingles was short. She said little beyond voting on three nominated district court judges who lacked Republican support and thus required backing from every Democrat to advance to the full Senate. I'm glad, every, uh, I'm glad to welcome our colleague Senator Feinstein back to our committee. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, said before adding that she was abetting several nominees who were so extreme and so unqualified that they couldn't have a prayer of getting a single Republican vote on this committee. The moment of uh, partisan rancor, which followed less abiding uh, greetings from her other colleagues, felt almost welcome in a form where she spent decades sparring, sparring over judicial nominees. But Feinstein's nearly three-month absence and homecoming has prompted debate over whether the 89-year-old who, who appeared frail when she arrived at the Capitol should leave before the end of her term. And it has raised broader questions of whether aging lawmakers grow too dependent on their staff, and if that make, makes leaving the comforts of Washington that much harder. The Senate can be a very warm, very comforting place for senators, said James Manley, who served Senators Edward M. Kennedy, Democrat of Massachusetts, and Harry Reid, Democrat of Nevada, as an aide from 1990 through 2010. You have staff to open the doors for you, the Capitol Police at your beck and call. Everyone's got a smile for you, and you have lots and lots of staff to do anything and everything you're asked to do. Feinstein, who has already announced she won't run for re-election in 2024, has the financial means for the best home care in the world. But lawmakers become accustomed to life with dotting assistants and aides who schedule their lives in 15-minute increments, write, uh, write their speeches, and often drive them to meetings and events. Some even use interns to walk their dogs. New senators and those running for re-election often need the help of even uh, when they are in their physical prime. 
a senator's life can be exhausting given the imperative to attend hearings, fundraisers, and constituent events all while crisscrossing the country. Many members frequently have staffers pick them up in, in the morning and drive them to a speech and bring them home in the evening for, uh, from another event, said Brian Walsh, who worked as a Republican congressional and campaign aide for nearly 15 years. If you're doing the job right, you're basically working 15-hour days. But that needed support can become, can become enabling, especially in the Senate, where winning an initial term is costly and grueling and staying for a long tenure is rewarded with even more power. A man, a man lead said he witnessed the real-time decline of several senators, including Tad Cochran, Republican of Mississippi, whose staff would whisper directions in his ear about where to go and what to say. Kennedy juggled his brain can, uh, cancer treatment with the desire to pass the Affordable Care Act, his career ambition. Manley said Reed and his leadership staff ran the powerful Appropriations Committee near the end of Senator Robert Byrd's long career, before the West Virginia Democrat voluntarily gave up the gavel. Byrd had access to anything he needed, including world-class health care, but the attachment to the Senate was more visceral, Manley said. It was everything, especially when his wife and dog died, Manley said. Unfortunately, senators lose some perspective and don't think they can live without being a senator. John Lawrence, a former chief of staff to Representative Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of San Francisco, said the birds of the world are the exception and that few, if any, lawmakers stay in office purely for the, for the support. Large staffs can only in, uh, insulate you so far from, rigor, from the rigors of travel and overlapping meetings, he said. Mary Bono, who spent 15 years representing, representing Palm Beach as a Republican member of the House, said it can be difficult for younger lawmakers who leave to get used to life without a full-time full team behind them. But she believes older members like Feinstein, who distinguished career uh, often landed her at the center of world events, have an even harder time adjusting to the diminished pace. The phone doesn't ring as much, and the world no longer sees you as in the mix, she said. Not many other professions or careers are you so interested in the front page news as you are because of uh, are because you used to be a part of it, Bono said. Now you're just reading it. The sight of Feinstein being wheeled through the Capitol's halls with a retinue of photographers and cameramen in tow underscored how eager the public was to get a sense of her well-being. Beyond the shingles diagnosis, and that she is, was hospitalized, the senator has revealed little about her health or how much she's been working, aside from statements asserting that she's been staying updated by staff from San Francisco as she recovered. Feinstein has long been known as not only powerful but hands-on, demanding, for, uh, for example, to edit media advisories before they were sent out. On Thursday, as the nomination for a district judge position came up in her committee, she read her yes vote from a note and then asked to be recorded as uh, voting in person on three other judges whose nominations were raised before her arrival. One aide whispered exuberantly into her ear. Another brought her coffee. Aides appeared to adjust the height of her chair before she arrived at the hearing. 
Democrats also worked around her, voting voting in three nominees who had bipartisan support before her arrival when her vote was not needed. Feinstein said in a news release Wednesday that her doctors have advised me to work a lighter schedule as she resumes her Senate career. One Feinstein staff member said the senator would uh, would decide which votes and hearings to attend on a case-by-case basis. But Thursday's hearing suggested she would probably skip votes when it was not crucial for the Democrats who hold the 51-49 majority in the Senate. Feinstein's vote Thursday helped District Court nominees Charnel Begrin, uh, Cato Cruz, and Marianne Gaston pass out of committee. Democrats pushed back forcefully at Republicans' assertions that there weren't the three weren't qualified. Senator Alex Padilla was quick to come to the defense of Gaston, who is a San Diego County Superior Court judge. After the vote, Padilla went to greet Feinstein and wish her well. It's great to have you back, he said. As she left the Judiciary Committee, reporters asked why she had returned now. Felt better, she said with a laugh. She then was asked about the need to raise the country's debt limit, one of the biggest controversies in Washington responded that she was getting up to speed on the subject and read a lot of material. After the hearing, Feinstein spent time in an office she kept she keeps on right of off the Senate floor. Then around 2 p.m. after voting, she was wheeled by a staff to a waiting car and left the Capitol. That was welcomed by Helping Hands by Benjamin Oreskes and Noah Bierman from the Los Angeles Times, Friday, May 12, 20. 23. All right, let's go into some entertainment news now. And uh, this one is from a website called CheatSheet.com. And it's called Steven Spielberg Once Named the Only Two Actors He Considered Life-Changing to Direct by Antonio Stallings, uh, published uh, March 7, 2023. Steven Spielberg has worked with many unique actors in his long and prolific film career, but there were only two movie stars he felt brought something life-changing to his projects. Spielberg has worked with almost every big name that Hollywood has to offer, from Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep to Matt Damon and Liam Neeson. Given his experience with so many gifted performers, Spielberg knew firsthand the lengths actors went through to embody their characters. I have worked with many fine, wonderful actors who bring while bring different values to their characters Spielberg once said in an interview with Irish Examiner I have learned how they arrived at those uh, very private and personal moments of consolidation where they are really able to imprint on a character to deliver the message convince us that they are that person even still even with working with so many talents Spielberg felt there were two actors it stood out from the best in the business. Everybody has a different uni- uh, technique, and I, quite frankly, don't care how anybody gets to where they need to go, but I will say that I think Daniel Day-Lewis and Tom Hanks are the two actors who I've had life-changing experiences with as a director, Spielberg said. Spielberg has worked with, Han- with Hanks on a variety of pro- uh, projects, Saving Private Ryan, The Terminal, and Bridge of Spies are some of the films they've made. Because of their frequent collaborations, Spielberg pinpointed what made Hanks such a formidable actor. 
One of the happiest experiences I've ever had with Tom was on this last film, Bridge of Spies. And it's simply because Tom is an honest actor, which means that he doesn't have to act. If he understands the character, he exists in clothing and in the persona of that character without having to work very hard, Spielberg once told the tech. The filmmaker had a similar experience working with Day Lewis on Lincoln. It just means what when Tom knows a character, he becomes that person the same way Daniel Day Lewis became Abraham Lincoln. And I'm just blessed to work with actors like that, who can completely drop who they are or who they think they are and become totally different people, Spielberg said. He was so impressed that by Day Lewis's ability that he doubted he would have made Lincoln if he couldn't cast the actor. I would probably have turned the script over to HBO and done a miniseries, Spielberg said. Whereas Spielberg and Hanks have worked together numerous times, Spielberg and Day-Lewis have only done Lincoln together. But the feature film was, uh, was a project that Day-Lewis didn't feel was for him. The timeline was simply, I approached Day, uh, Daniel to uh, first play Lincoln eight, nine years ago. We had a very healthy flirt about possibly doing this together. He turned me down, Spielberg told Collider back in 2012. And then Liam Neeson. Then we both decided to do other things, and then I came back to Daniel. But since Neeson and Day Lewis were good friends, Day Lewis went to Neeson for advice before committing to the biopic. From the moment that Liam decided it was no longer uh, something that he would be engaged in, he has been in touch with me about it since and has given me incredible encouragement and in the most generous possible way, Day Lewis said. I was undecided about whether I should do it. He gave me encouragement towards that decision as well. And that was that was Spiel, Steven Spielberg once named the only two actors he considered life-changing to direct by Antonio Stallings, March 7th, 2023, from the website CheatSheet.com. All right, now here's something from a site called TVLine.com. Mrs. Maisel Flash Forward List. All of Season 5's futuristic Easter eggs updated with Epic 7's Rose Twit by Michael Azilo, May 12, 2023. The marvelous Mrs. Maisel is taking a page from This Is Us, a uh, well-worn uh, uh, multiple timeline playbook in its fifth season, injecting the first three of its final nine episodes with fleeting glimpses of its characters' circa future lives. For the cast, the narrative twist made receiving each script an event unto itself. We never knew what was coming, and we were so surprised, leading lady Rachel Brosnahan tells TV Line. It was fun to get a glimpse into the future and understand what happened during these pivotal points in their lives. It was also confusing and intimidating, the Emma winner adds with a laugh. I asked Amy and Den to make a flash-forward cheat sheet for me. Ask, and ye shall receive. To help everyone, Maisel cast members included, stay on top of this season's innumerable flash-forward developments, we've launched this handy tracking board featured, uh, featuring all of the major reveals. This chart will be updated throughout the season as events warrant, so be sure to check back Friday mornings through the end of the season on May 26 for the latest narrative download. Season 5, Episode 1, Esther's A Genius with Mommy Issues. 
The premiere jumps ahead to 1981 and finds Midge's college-aged daughter, played by Red Oaks' Alexandria Socha, unpacking her copious mommy baggage with her MIT base shrink. Base drink. During the brief sequence, we learn that Esther is a genius-level scientist who is being pursued by NASA. She also harbors deep resentment toward her famous and impossible-to-please mother. Season 5, Episode 2, Midge on 60 Minutes. How a big star is how big a star is Midge in 1981? So big that the iconic CBS News magazine is doing a profile on her. In the introduction to the piece, Midge is labeled a worldwide celebrity whose burgeoning awards chest includes both an Emmy and a Grammy. She's halfway to an EGOT. Season 5, Episode 2, Midge becomes tight with Bob Hope. The 60 Minutes segment revealed that, at age 30, Midge performed 18 consecutive sold-out nights at New York's famed Copacabana nightclub. Other features in Midge's career cap, she joined Bob Hope on multiple legs of his USO tours and followed in Lenny Bruce's footsteps in, uh, to Carnegie Hall, where she headlined an infamous Circa 1971 show. Season 5, Episode 2, Midge gets married three more times. Another 60-minute bombshell. In the wake of her failed marriage to Joel, Midge goes on to tie the knot three more times. All of those unions similarly end in divorce. Although the segment features several photos of Midge cozying up to A-listers like Paul Simon, it does not specify which of those celebs were her ex-husbands versus mere boyfriends. Season 5, Episode 2, Susie Achieves Superstardom 2 Midge's stratospheric success propels her long-suffering manager Susie Meyerson to Hollywood's A-list too. The powerful entertainment manager, as 60 Minutes refers to her, will go on to sign Liza Minnelli, George Carlin, and Barbara Streisand. Season 5, Episode 2, Midge and Susie Go Kaput Say it ain't so! The 60 Minutes piece refers to Midge and Susie as estranged. A 25-year friendship gone bust, the piece declares. It's unclear what future event causes the dynamic duo to split up, although Midge boils it down to this. Two people in show business have tried to have a friendship. Season 5, Episode 3, Adult Ethan is Living in Israel. Midge's oldest child, now 20-something son Aunt Ethan, played by Boardwalk Empire's Ben Rosenfield, is glimpsed in 1984 living in Israel, where he is working on a kibbutz while studying to be a rabbi. He informs his mother, who arrives via helicopter for this particular visit. She's in the country to attend an, an UJA Foundation event where she's being honored, that he's engaged to be married. His bride-to-be, Chava, is ex-military. Season 5, Episode 5, Joel's in Prison. After a flash-forwardless for, uh, fourth episode, Mrs. Maisel's fifth episode briefly jumped ahead 27 years to 1987, with a 55-year-old Midge visiting former husband number one, Joel, in prison. It's never explained, explicitly revealed, at least not yet, why he's in the slammer, although the dialogue int uh, intimates that it involved protecting his famous ex-wife. Season 5, Episode 6 Midge was engaged to Philip Roth. Among Midge's many famous future suitors was acclaimed American novelist Philip Roth, although the pair never made it down the aisle. 
A flash forward in episode 6 reveals that Midge broke off her engagement to the literary legend uh, the morning of their wedding. Her reasons were twofold. He didn't make her laugh, and she was still holding a torch for Joel. Translation, we still do not definitively know the identity of Midge's three other ex-husbands after Joel. Season 5, Episode 6, Joel's in prison because of Midge. The big, episode five, the big Episode 5 mystery surrounding future Joel's prison stint did not remain a mystery for long. In Episode 6, viewers learned that Joel secretly made a deal with lovable mafiosos Frank and Nikki in order to get his ex Midge out from under their thumb, an underground trade that ultimately landed him in the clink. Season 5, Episode 6, Midge and Susie Schism Explained Joel's honorable sacrifice, as outlined in the previous slide, was what led to Midge and Susie's seismic estrangement, as it was Susie's mob ties that Midge unwittingly got entangled in. All hell breaks loose between the two besties when, in Episode 6, Midge learns the truth. Season 5, Episode 7, R.I.P. Rose a 1973 flash-forward confirmed what was foreshadowed earlier in the season. Rose will die young. In Episode 7, Midge, who we learn is quietly bankrolling Rose's money-losing romance emporium, laments that her mom does not have long to live. And that was Mrs. Maisel flash-forward list. All of Season 5's futuristic Easter eggs updated with Episode 7's Rose Twist by Michael Azilio, May 12, 2023, from TVLine.com. All right, we got something else here from PopCulture.com, and this is called Mayan Bialik Leaves Jeopardy to Support Writer Strike by Libby Burke, May 11, 2023. Mayan Bialik has pulled out of hosting Jeopardy ahead of her final week of filming, making the long-running game show one of the first to be impacted by the Writers Guild of America strike. Deadline reports that Bialik decided against hosting the final week of filming for season 39 in order to stand in solidarity with the striking writers. Bialik has yet to make a public statement on the reported news. However, production of the final run of episodes for the season is reportedly still going ahead with Ken Jennings taking over Bialik's hosting duties. The final episodes of the season will be filmed at the Sunny Pictures lot in Culver City next week between Tuesday, May 16 and Friday, May 19, Deadline reports. Produced by Sunny Pictures Television. Jeopardy! is a WGA show and features contributions from WGA writers. However, the questions for the episodes in question were written in advance of the season and the strike. Some Jeopardy! writers, including Michelle Loud, Jim Ryan and Billy Weiss have joined the picket lines as part of the strike, Deadline reports. Bialik and Jennings have shared hosting duties this season, with Jennings hosting episodes between August and December and Bialik starting in January. Jennings will now host the last week before the summer hiatus as a result of Bialik's move to support the WGA. Recently renewed for another five years, Jeopardy! has aired on ABC-owned television stations in major markets for over 30 years. It is the most-watched show in syndication with around 9 million viewers weekly and is the second-most-watched same-day entertainment show on TV after 60 minutes. 
it's unclear if the writer's strike will affect season 40 of Jeopardy, as the show will break for the summer after next week and resume filming in a few months. At that point, it remains unclear how the strike will be shaking out if any agreements will have been made. That was Maya Bialik Leaves Jeopardy to Support Writer's Strike by Libby Burke from PopCulture.com, May 11, 2023. Right, now here's a related story that goes back about a year from PopCulture.com. Maya Bialik reveals her biggest Jeopardy critic might be her mother by Andrew Roberts, November, uh, October 2, 2022. Jeopardy host Maya Bialik is no, is no stranger to criticism and vitriol in the role, especially when it comes to folks online. But according to her recent appearance on The Late Late Show with James, Car- uh, James Corden on Wednesday, her biggest critic seems to be coming from her own family. Bialik has previously noted how some fans of the show were critical of her wardrobe and fashion choices on the show. As it turns out, her mother is the biggest critic of the dress choices and she has direct access to complain. She will send me screenshots of every episode in case I forgot what I was wearing in that particular episode, Bialik detailed on the show. I'll get a little report like, I really like this bizarre, not so crazy about this top. She is quick to point out that her mother is not very swift with the screenshots, though typically catching her in the most unflattering moment. In the middle of it, I would just think like, she's got a whole half hour. Find a better screenshot, she jokes. Bialik is well aware of her status among Jeopardy fans, at least the vocal ones. The constant comparisons to fellow, co- to fe- to fellow host Ken, Jen- Ken Jennings are the latest chapter in the host search that followed Alex Trebek's death. While Bialik really didn't do anything to deserve the hate, it was inevitable given the search and controversy that followed it. I'm female, and as much as men and women can and should do the same things, women are perceived differently, Bialik said. I really try to be a neutral presence as much as possible so that it is not an issue. I get to be myself. I make a lot of stupid jokes. Ken and I both want to highlight our our contestants, make them feel comfortable, and make them feel good. The way he says things, I'm assuming he probably knows all those things. For me, I I get to read them like, wow, this is amazing. That doesn't mean everything goes smoothly on the show. I have two red buttons, but they removed one. I accidentally hit the wrong one, so they took it away. They left my other emergency button in place. So I have a defunct emergency button, Bialik explained, giving a feel for life behind the podium. She also notes that speaking Jeopardy language, Jeopardies, can be tricky. Not saying the same thing every time something is right, having each commercial break sound a little bit different, those are all the changes. And that was... Mayim Bialik reveals her biggest Jeopardy critic might be her mother by Andrew Roberts, October 2, 2022, from popculture.com. All right, and now we go to the world of professional wrestling, and you know who you are. This is from a site called thesportster.com. This is called Paul Heyman's Partnership and Breakup with CM Punk is a Forgotten Part of WWE History. With how often... CM Punk is in the news for his behavior, it's easy to forget about the WWE feud he had with his former manager, Paul Heyman, by Andrew Kelly, for Saturday, May 13, 2023. 
CM Punk is a very noteworthy individual and is always creating headlines, and this can mean uh, that what he has done yesterday can be very easily forgotten. Fans well remember his history of making WWE Championship reign of over 400 days, but some fans may forget that he was aligned with Paul Heyman for much of that. Some may also forget that Heyman turned on Punk within his last year in the company, causing a near six-month-long storyline between, uh, between the pair. Due to Punk leaving not long after the culmination of this in a newsworthy walkout, this is often overlooked. Following Punk's heel turn in 2012, in which he attacked The Rock on Raw 1000, he went on to align with Paul Heyman. Heyman and Punk were a duo of two formidable masters on the, of the microphone and made, it, and made their act mightily entertaining. It, it, it built off their previous support for one another back when Punk was in ECW at a time where Heyman thought very highly of the young star and his potential in the business, which was initially overlooked by Vince McMahon. Heyman helped Punk traverse through his record-breaking WWE Championship reign, up until it was halted by The Rock at the 2013 Royal Rumble. From there, though, the pair took their attention towards The Undertaker at WrestleMania 29 in a thrilling, intense, and emotional storyline in which the recent passing of Paul Bearer was a concentrated topic within the rivalry. The match itself was fantastic, but it saw Punk on the losing end as subsequently take a couple of months away from the WWE programming. This would prove to be the beginning of an end of their alliance. When Punk returned from his brief absence, the fans, the fans showed him a whole load of support, and he leaned into it, shedding away much of his heel personality and tendencies. This made for a natural babyface turn that was aided by his return uh, back at Payback in Chicago in a winning effort against former rival Chris Jericho. Heyman wasn't too on board with this change in personality, and his frustrations could be seen growing as the weeks went by. A turn from Heyman all seemed but inevitable. At Money in the Bank pay-per-view, Heyman turned his back on Punk and attacked him, costing him the Money in the Bank briefcase by attacking him with the ladder. This sparked the beginning of a feud between the pair. Ahead of SummerSlam, Heyman reintroduces other client of Brock Lesnar into the fold, resulting in a fantastic no-disqualification match at SummerSlam between the pair. The feud should have really ended here, but it continued, and it only got worse and worse as the months progressed. Heyman was also aligned with the Intercontinental Champion Curtis Axel during this time, though despite holding the gold, he was used as a punching bag. At Night of Champions, Punk took on Axel and Heyman in a handicap match, though it didn't have the title on the line. WWE booking suggested the belt was below Punk, which did no favors for its prestige. In a shocking finish, Ryback interfered and attacked Punk, aligning himself with Heyman as a brand new Paul Heyman guy. The feud continued with Ryback as the main obstacle, but it was clear to see that Punk wasn't too into it and it is hard to blame him as his personality was sucked from him during his, due to his poor booking around it this time. Their match at, book ba uh, at both Battleground and Hell in a Cell were nothing special, particularly the latter. For two years in a row, Punk and Ryback met in the Hell in a Cell structure in a feud which didn't deserve the stipulation on both occasions, which made the match matches ten times worse. 
Heyman was also technically involved, but he spent the match atop the cell and was eventually attacked by Punk after the bell in what was a fine moment, but nothing memorable. The Punk-Heyman rivalry ended with this match in a finish to a rivalry which was long overdue. Punk as a babyface wasn't connecting as well as it had done in the past, and Heyman's list of lackeys were running thin of quality. This should have been a fantastic feud between the two great storytellers, but the WWE's booking really let things down, particularly after the initial match with Brock Lesnar. Punk loitered around in the bland and bland rivalries against the Wyatt family and the Shield until they finally had enough and walked away from the WWE. These headlines were far more interesting than anything Punk had done since turning babyface, meaning that many just forgot all about his Heyman feud. And that was Paul Heyman's partnership and breakup with CM Punk is a forgotten part of WWE history by Andrew Kelly uh, from thesportster.com, uh, May 13th, Saturday, May 13th, 2023. Paul Heyman is the one that's Jewish, by the way. And speaking of Paul Heyman, here is a uh, follow-up article. Actually, it's a, a few months old, also from thesportster.com. Why Paul Heyman betrayed Brock Lesnar twice in the WWE explained. Over two decades, Paul Heyman appeared as the advocate for Brock Lesnar in the WWE, but not once, but twice. He turned on the Beast Incarnate by Andrew Kelly, published March 19, 2023. Ever since Brock Lesnar first stepped foot on the WWE main roster, his career was intertwined with Paul Heyman. Whether it be as a close friend, manager, advocate, or even a sworn enemy, the pair have never been too far away from one another. On two separate occasions, Heyman has double-crossed and betrayed Brock Lesnar, putting an end to their relationship more than once on WWE programming. There are reasons for both of the betrayals, but they all do stem from, uh, from Heyman's desire to success, for success. Either way, it is interesting to explore how, when, and why Heyman betrayed Lesnar in the WWE not once, but twice. All the way back in 2002, Paul Heyman introduced the world to Brock Lesnar, standing by his side as a manager and agent when he made his debut on Raw. Heyman played a huge role in hyping up Lesnar as a star, and he was pivotal to his lightning-quick rise up uh, the card as he won the King of the Ring tournament and then went on to become the WWE Champion just a few months into his stint in the WWE at SummerSlam, the SummerSlam pay -per 2002 pay-per-view. Heyman was a great part of Lesnar's act, aiding him during his reign as WWE Champion on SmackDown. After outlasting The Undertaker, Lesnar was embroiled in a feud against The Big Show. Heyman wasn't so certain of Lesnar surviving this challenge, advising him not to go ahead with the match. Lesnar, even as a heel, was a fighting champion and wasn't scared. This led to Heyman turning on Lesnar at Survivor Series 2002, costing him the gold and helping Big Show win the match. The motivations for this turn were explained on the following episode of SmackDown, stating that it takes more than physical prowess to survive on top, and that he was the brains behind Lesnar's success. However, when Lesnar stopped heeding his advice, Heyman decided to take his business elsewhere, jumping ship before things went downhill. In Heyman's eyes, Big Show was the wrestler more destined for success, so he wanted to be by the side of a champion, and not Lesnar. Of course, Big Show's time on top didn't quite work out, 
as he lost the title to Kurt Angle before Lesnar then won it back at WrestleMania 19, this time as a Paul Heyman-less babyface. In 2012, Heyman and Lesnar reunited on WWE television after Lesnar's big return to the company. Heyman was now his advocate and firmly a mouthpiece, as Lesnar very rarely spoke on the microphone. Heyman would even betray CM Punk to stay by Lesnar's side, standing by him as he ended The Undertaker's undefeated streak at WrestleMania, and many world title victories too, defeating big names like John Cena, Roman Reigns, Goldberg, Samoa Joe, Randy Orton, and many more over the years. For all intents and purposes, it seemed like Heyman and Lesnar would be aligned for good. However, in 2020, Heyman became aligned with someone else. Following Roman Reigns' return to WWE television, in which he turned heel, he joined forces with Heyman in what was a huge shock. He became Reigns' advisory special counsel, billed as the wise man, appearing in more of a worshipping role at times, with him clearly scared yet hugely admiring of Reigns. He hadn't yet betrayed Lesnar, though, as he was on an absence from programming. Upon Lesnar's return to the WWE, the allegiance of Heyman was one of the biggest talking points in the WWE. He very much sat on the fence between both men until he was fired by Reigns and realigned with Lesnar. However, it wasn't long until Heyman once again turned his back on Lesnar. At the Royal Rumble 2022 event, Heyman helped Reigns, lost, helped Reigns uh, cost Lesnar the WWE Championship. Again, Heyman had his eyes set on someone who was in a better position to ensure that he remained successful, and with Reigns as the younger and dominant champion, he decided to put his eggs in the bloodline basket. This has been a common occurrence for Heyman, as he in many ways uses whoever is available to remain a success, and when things don't look good, he jumps ship and joins with someone else. He is the wrestling equivalent of Peter Pettigrew, betraying those closest to him in favor of power, success, and also doing it out of fear, disregarding loyalty and morality. And that was that was why Paul Heyman betrayed Brock Lesnar twice in the WWE Explained by Andrew Kelly, published March 19, 2023, from the all right, and now let's go on to some articles from JewishJournal.com. And we got some of the Israel stories here. We start off with this one. Over 300 rockets fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel. Red alerts to take shelter were sounded in Israel from the Gaza border area to the Gush Dan, Tel Aviv's metropolitan area by Blake Flayton, May 10, 2023. Over 300 rockets were fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel on Wednesday after Israel killed three senior members of Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the early hours on Tuesday in the Gaza Strip. The attack killed a number of civilians as well. The ongoing operation in Gaza, which Israel specifies as against Palestinian, Palestinian Islamic Jihad-affiliated individuals and infrastructure, has been dubbed Shield and Arrow by the Israeli military. Red alerts to take shelter were sounded in Israel from the Gaza border, uh, border area to the Gush Dan, Tel Aviv's metropolitan area. As of 6 o'clock p.m. Israel time, 62 rockets were reportedly intercepted by the Iron Dome and David Sling, 
Israel's defensive military technology, and they were confirmed to have been to have made impact inside of Israel. Uh, three were made to three were made to have confirmed to have made impact inside of Israel. Sixty-five fell into Gaza, and three were fired at Tel Aviv. On Wednesday evening, Egyptian press reported that a ceasefire had been brokered between Israel and Gaza militants. But a new wave of rocket alerts sounded in the Tel Aviv area around at 7.30 p.m. shortly after the ceasefire announcement. In a televised address around 9 p.m., Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that the campaign is not over. Speaking to the leaders of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, we see you everywhere you can hide. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant later verified that the fighting was not over. Leaders of the Israeli opposition uh, Yair Lapid of the Yesh Atid Party and Ben Gantz of the National Unity Party issued a statement stressing the importance of backing IDF and security force operational activity. That was over 300 rockets fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel by Blake Flayton, May 10, 2023. Alright, here is another one. Breaking the Cycle. Why humanity is the only path forward in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Sure, it is complicated, and of course Israel must defend itself from terrorists. But what is painfully absent is leadership from all sides asking how can we just how we can put an end to this cycle of violence. By Han Mazik, May 11, 2023. T.S. Eliot might have reconsidered his famous line, April is the cruelest month, had he dropped by Cedar Road in the south of Israel today. It appears that dozens of rockets fired into Israel this April were only a small preview of the hundreds that are raining down from Gaza as I write this. Israel supporters who are pointing to the importance of the Israeli Defense Forces operation to counter terror groups are overlooking the elephant in the room. Civilians on both sides are caught in the crossfire. This is what happens when radical leaders anywhere prioritize holding onto power over all else. Sure it is complicated. And of course, Israel must defend itself from terrorists. But what is painfully absent is leadership from all sides asking how we can put an end to this cycle of violence. That answer starts with acknowledging that there are conflicting truths. I am a deeply patriotic Israeli. That is the truth. No less true than the fact that I passionately believe in the freedom and dignity of the Palestinians. Just as I advocate for the well-being of my country, I have consistently advocated for reconciliation and peace. We must advance that truth with the same certainty that we vehemently condemn anyone who suggests that Palestinian rights can or should be attained through the mass murder of Israeli civilians. Which brings to the, us to the question, why did we initiate this recent operation? After 104 rockets were fired two weeks ago in April, Israel responded with a delayed action, focusing on eliminating top leaders of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. This approach, however, proved ineffective in the past, as we undertook a similar operation nine months ago. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad should not be confused with Hamas. They are two distinct terrorist groups. While the former relies on funding from Iran, it is well known that both groups share resources and collaborate closely in their attempts to terrorize Israeli civilians. Despite Israel's statements claiming Hamas was not involved in this round, Hamas itself claimed responsibility for some of the rocket attacks. 
Israel did not want Hamas to fully engage because, contrary to what Prime Minister Netanyahu was saying publicly, he too wants this round to end quickly. That is why he reached out to Egypt requesting assistance in negotiating a ceasefire. With a ceasefire likely, the question that must be asked is, what did we achieve? Yes, we eliminated three top leaders of a vicious terrorist group. It may be hours or days, but they will soon be replaced by equally violent leaders. Meanwhile, through this operation, several Palestinian women and children were killed in our attacks. Even apologists for the lives lost have to acknowledge that Israel's image has suffered significant damage internationally. In addition, millions of Israelis have sought refuge in bomb shelters, causing substantial economic damage in the paralyzed south. If that weren't enough, each Iron Dome rocket costs over $50,000. Above all, this operation has widened the divide between Israelis and Palestinians, intensified tensions, and left Israeli Arabs feeling more isolated. And no one living in the south or center feels any safer, including my parents and my grandmother in Tel Aviv. No one wishes more than me than this, that this operation had achieved something to promote peace and security. Regrettably, it did not. What it did do was further draw focus away from finding ways to improve the situation. Just as Palestinians must reject the dehumanization of Jews and hateful, the hateful ideology of their leaders, Israelis and Jews must openly state that Palestinians deserve a life free from fear and the opportunity to lead fulfilling lives. It should not be controversial to affirm that for the sake of our children, uh, we must, and our, the future of our land, we must recognize each other's humanity, acknowledge our own faults, and resist hate. That was Breaking the Cycle, Why Humanity is the Only Path Forward in the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict by Han Mazik, May 11, 2023. And here's one more. Israeli killed as Gaza rocket makes direct hit on Rehovot building. Five others were wounded in the attack from the Jewish News Syndicate, May 11, 2021. An Israeli man was killed when a rocket fired from the Gaza Strip struck a four-story building in Rehovot, 12 miles south of Tel Aviv, on Thursday evening. The unidentified man's body was reportedly found under the rubble. It is the first Israeli fatality since the start of Operation Shield and Arrow against Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip. Five other people were wounded in the rocket attack. Police officers were searching the site and sappers were removing parts of the rocket. Authorities reiterated calls for civilians to follow the relevant safety guidelines. The rocket fire was the first direct directed towards central Israel since the previous day. Closer to the Gaza Strip, a foreign worker was hurt by shrapnel from the latest barrage on the Eshkol region. He was treated at the scene and taken to the hospital. His condition was not immediately clear. An 82-year-old woman was, light, uh, was lightly wounded by, the, by shrapnel in the Sudot Negev region. According to the Magan David Adom Emergency Medical Service, the rocket hit outside a home. The woman was taken to Soroka Medical Center in Beersheba. Another direct hit in Sidrot failed to injure anyone. Uh, Israeli, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant uh, requested on Wednesday cabinet approve 
approval to extend the emergency declaration in force for communities situated within 40 kilometers or 25 miles of Gaza to all those located within 50 kilometers of te the terrorist enclave. The extension of the status would enable the IDF to determine safety guidelines for the civilian population, prevent large gatherings and close relevant sites in parts of central Israel, including in Tel Aviv. The Israel Air Force on Thursday afternoon killed a fifth PIG terrorist leader since the start of Operation Shield and Arrow. Amid Abu Deka, a senior member of the Islamic Jihad rocket uh, launching force was targeted. As of 2.30 p.m., the Israel Defense Forces reported that Gaza terrorists had fired 547 rockets and mortar shells at Israel since Tuesday morning. Out of these 547 launches, 394 projectiles crossed into Israeli territory, and 124 fell short in Gaza. Four Palestinian civilians, including a 10-year-old girl, were killed by the failed rocket launches, according to the IDF. Israeli aerial defenses intercepted 175 rockets on their way to populated areas. The IDF said it targeted 166 terrorist sites in the Gaza Strip since the start of the military operation. That was Israeli killed as Gaza rocket makes direct hit on Rehovot building from the Jewish News Syndicate, May 11, 2023. All right, here's a worldwide article. This is called Israel Morocco co-host Women in Innovation Conference in Marrakesh. The event meant to promote regional peace and prosperity comes less than three years after the Abraham Accords normalized Israel's relations with Morocco and three other countries in the region. By Karen Seton from the Media Line, May 11, 2023. Almost 100 female business leaders from four continents gathered in Morocco last week for the Women Connect to Innovate conference, where they discussed women-driven innovation as a path to regional prosperity. The three-day conference in Marrakesh was hosted by the Israeli nonprofit Startup Nation Central and Morocco's consensus public relations firm. The collaboration between an Israeli nonprofit and a Moroccan firm involving women from across the Middle East and Africa served as a reminder of how much Israel's position in the region has improved in just a few years. The 2020 Abraham Accords normalized Israel's relations with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco. In 2021, Sudan signed on as well. Since the signing of the agreements, the countries have established substantial partnerships with Israel. Conferences like this one and other forms of innovation uh, diplomacy have helped Israel to cement its partnerships with countries in the region. Aviva Steinberger, Director of Innovation uh, Diplomacy at Startup National Nation Central, told the media line that innovation diplomacy is about a leveraging is about leveraging the ecosystem in the country in order to create resilient ties with countries in the region and focusing on addressing shared and global challenges. It's building relationships based on innovation collaboration, she said. Star Startup Nation Central's mission is to connect Israeli innovation to the rest of the world. The Women Connect to Innovate conference specifically focused on bringing that innovation in an equitable way. According to the Israel Innovation Authority, women make up only a third of the Israeli high-tech workforce. 
less than 10% of high-tech CEOs in Israel are women. For Arab-Israeli women, the number are even lower uh, relative to their share of the population. Rates of women working in high-tech throughout the Middle East and Africa are lower than rates in Israel, Steinberger said. She said that conferences like Women Connect to Innovate help support the women in high-tech by connecting them with an entire network of women in leadership positions all across the region. Attending the conference expanded the women's ne uh, networks to include experts in fields such as investment and software engineering, potentially crucial factors to growing a business that may have been absent from the women's networks until then, Steinberger said. The United Nations Generation Equality Forum says that technology plays a major role both in achieving gender equality and in promoting sustainable development. But in order for technology to bring about gender equality, technology itself needs to become more equitable. Factors such as a significant gender gap in cell phone ownership in low and middle income countries create a barrier to women's integration into high tech. Justine Swirling, a founding member of the Gulf Israel Women's Forum and head of the Middle East branch at Shore Capital Markets, was one of the participants in the conference. Such an event shows exactly how the future needs to be built, Zwirling told the media line. Women are natural supporters of each other, and they need to make sure they have more of an extensive network. She said that supporting women is a great investment for any economy, given how much work women take on inside and outside the home. Aida Kendil, the CEO of an e-commerce platform meant to connect Moroccan small business owners with consumers from around the world, also said that the event could help bring about a better future. It is important to have such gender events that allow us to think uh, on how we can join force forces and make changes, Kendil said. Steinberger said that the women who attended were able to discuss their visions for the future without minimizing their own identities. The women participated with all the different hats they wear in their daily lives – business leaders, mothers, daughters, wives. All the roles really factor in how women bring themselves into their leadership and into their businesses. It was about how we can support each other to generate economic prosperity and chartering a vision for what the future of the region could look like by rec recognizing the inherent strength that women have in forging connections, she said. The challenges faced by the women who attended have to do with many factors other than gender. Many of the countries they represented are dealing with water scarcity, food insecurity, and various military threats. Steinberger insisted that those tensions could be addressed without making the event a political one. While we cannot ignore the fact that we are all influenced by the politics of the region, we focused on the role that innovation and connection play to make sure that relationships in the region are resilient, she said. The hope is that through the, these personal relationships we built, the relationships between the countries will withstand the tensions we face in the area. Swirling described the conference as a zero politics event. One of the workshops at the conference focused on women's, uh, women's confidence, especially in a business or fundraising setting. Zwirling said that many of the women at the workshop struggled when asked to speak highly of themselves. The women were stuttering, she said. Women are always dealing with the issue of confidence. 
for a lot of the women of all ages, the session resonated with them and broke through a lot of personal barriers, allowing them to go forward with strength. Kandel said that some aspects of traditional gender roles will need to shift to allow women to make headway in the high-tech field. More women need to be convinced to start entrepreneurship journeys and take more leadership roles, she said. In Morocco, this is not always a given. The conference ended with the unveiling of a new graffiti wall in Marrakesh, featuring images inspired by the conference. The wall was created by artists from Israel, Morocco, and Senegal. And that was Israel, Morocco co-host Women in Innovation Conference in Marrakesh by Karen, Karen Setten from the Media Line, May 11, 2023. All right, now let's shift back to the United States. And we have a couple of articles here. Rashida Talib to host Nakba Day Congressional Event. The event titled Nakba 75 and the Palestinian People lists several anti-Israel groups as organizers by Aaron Bandler, May 9, 2023. Representative Rashida Talib, Democrat of Michigan, will be hosting an event at the Capitol Visitor Center on May 10th commemorating Nakba Day. The event titled Nakba 75 and the Palestinian People lists several anti-Israel groups as organizers, including Jewish Voice for Peace, Action, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, and Institute for Middle East Understanding. The event, will, the event page says it will feature Talib, but, Washington, uh, but the Washington Free Bacon and Jerusalem Post both note that only a sitting member of Congress can reserve a spot at the Capitol Visit Center. May 15th marks 75 years since the beginning of the Nakba, which means catastrophe, the event page states. 75 years ago, Zionist militias and the new Israeli military violently expelled approximately three-quarters of all Palestinians from their homes and homeland in what became the state of Israel. To uplift the experiences of Palestinians who underwent the Nakba and educate members of Congress and their staff about this history and the ongoing Nakba to which Israel continues to subject Palestinians, we've partnered together to host this congressional and community educational event to be followed immediately afterward by dinner. Representative Jeff Gottenheimer, Democrat of New Jersey, told the Jerusalem Post there was strong bipartisan support in Congress for the U.S.-Israel relationship and no effort that attempts to rewrite history and question Israel's right to exist has any hope of succeeding. At a time when that relationship is integral to our joint, joint fight against terror, expansion of Israeli-Arab normalization efforts, and shared security and intelligence efforts, this narrative only shows divisiveness and hate. Jewish groups also denounced the Talib and the event. The real Nakba is that Talib got elected to represent a district and the American people of, in Congress. Simon Weisenthal Center Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action Agenda Rabbi Abraham Cooper told the Free Bacon. She could have been and should have been someone who would work tirelessly to bring Palestinians and Israelis to make peace. Instead, she continues to serve as a cheerleader for demonization and delegitimization of the Jewish state. Stop Anti-Semitism Direct, Executive Director Liara Rez similarly told the New York Post that Talib continues to mischaracterize Israel's history and policies, making her a natural ally for organizations like IMEU, one of the top propagators of false anti-Israel rhetoric on social media. 
The real catastrophe is Representative Talib and her allies' refusal to engage with Zionism in good faith. Fact checks haven't stopped them because they hold ideology above accuracy. As long as they ignore the reality of Israel's past, they can't participate in honest conversations about its present and future. Brooke Goldstein, who heads the Lawfare Project and co-founded End Jewish Hatred, tweeted, It's one thing to spew hateful rhetoric. It's another to use U.S. Congress to do so. Rashida Tlaib shouldn't be permitted to hold a Nakba Day event on U.S. Congress property. This day mourns the inability of Arabs to commit a genocide of Jews in 1948. Outrageous and unacceptable. The Republican Jewish Coalition tweeted, These are the ascendant anti-Israel voices in the Democratic Party, and House Democrats continue to pathetically coddle them. Talib's office did not immediately respond to the journal's request for comments. There was Rashida Talib to host Nakba Day Congressional Event by Aaron Bandler, May 9, 2023. We have a follow-up article. This is called Speaker McCarthy Cancels Rashida Talib's Nakba Day Event. McCarthy tweeted on May 9 that in place of the Nakba Day event, he will host a bipartisan discussion to honor the 75th anniversary of the U.S.-Israel relationship by Aaron Bandler, May 9, 2023. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, announced on Twitter that he has canceled Representative Rashidi Tlaib's Democrat of Michigan Nakba Day event scheduled for May 10 at the Capitol Visitor Center. McCarthy tweeted on May 9 that in place of the Nakba Day event, he will host a bipartisan discussion to honor the 75th anniversary of the U.S.-Israel relationship. McCarthy further told the Washington Free Bacon it's wrong for members of Congress to traffic in anti-Semitic tropes about Israel. As long as I'm Speaker, we are going to support Israel's right to self-determination and self-defense, unequivocally and in a bipartisan fashion. The event was organized by several anti-Israel groups, with Talib listed as a guest on the event page, reserving an event at the Visitor Center can only be done by a sitting member of Congress. The Nakba Arabic for Catastrophe is the Palestinian narrative of the establishment of Israel and the ensuing war for independence in 1948. MacArthur received plaudits on Twitter from elected officials and Jewish groups for nixing the event. Thank you, at Speaker McCarthy, Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, tweeted. Every member of Congress should immediately condemn this disgusting anti-Semitism. We need to send a message. The United States will always stand with Israel. Thank you, at Speaker McCarthy, for putting an end to this anti-Semitic event at the U.S. Capitol and for recognizing the important relationship between the U.S. and Israel, 75 years strong. Representative Mike Lawler, Republican of New York, similarly tweeted. Stop anti-Semitism tweeted to McCarthy. Thank you for standing up to Talib's ongoing hate campaigns against the world's only Jewish nation. Enough is enough. Judea Pearl, Chancellor Professor of Computer Science at UCLA, National Academy of Sciences and member, uh, and, and, member and Daniel Pearl Foundation President, tweeted that McCarthy's move was a wise decision, but noted that it's a deprived at Rashida Talib from reaffirming in public what pro-coexistence folks have been claiming for years. Palestinians cannot depict a future that does not entail the demise of their neighbors. Elon Carr, former special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, tweeted, Thank you, Mr. At Speaker McCarthy, for reaffirming that the U.S. Capitol is a place of philo-Semitism, not anti-Semitism. 
Zionist Organization of America President Morton A. Klein said in a statement that Talib's frequent vicious libels of Jews and Israel render her unfit to serve in the U.S. Congress or on any House committee. And the Nakba Day event would have promulgated the sick, twisted, hateful, genocidal concept that it is a catastrophe that Israel has managed to survive and that the Arabs failed to totally annihilate Israel's Jewish population and homeland in 1948 or in the 75 years since then. That was Speaker McCarthy cancels Rashida Tlaib's Nakba Day event by Aaron Bandler, May 9, 2023. And here's one final one. Rashida Tlaib hosts Nakba Day event in Senate building. The event took place in the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions hearing room, a committee chaired by Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, by Aaron Bandler, May 11, 2023. Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat of Michigan, held her Nakba Day event, after all, on May 10, inside a Senate office building. Jewish insider reporter Mark Rod tweeted that the event took place in the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions hearing room, a committee chaired by Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont. Rod, who attended the event, tweeted that Sanders sponsored the event. The New York Post noted that a source told them that Senate committee chairs are responsible for approving rooms used for the events. However, the Jerusalem Post reported that Sanders was not at the event. Initially, the event was going to be held in the U.S. Capitol Visitor Center until Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, canceled it. But McCarthy does not have any jurisdiction over a Senate building, Rod noted. Sanders told Rod, members of the United States Congress in a democratic society have a right to hold a meeting. I think it's outrageous that Speaker McCarthy threw them out of a room they had reserved. Rod also tweeted that at the standing room only event, Talib accused Israeli police of a sustained campaign of terror at the Temple Mount. She also said during the event that, according to the New York Post, the Nakba never ended. Each year, our country sends billions to explicitly maintain an apartheid state and support ethnic cleansing without a second thought. Additionally, Talib said that no child should ever have to worry what will fall from the sky, per the Jerusalem Post. Representative Cory Bush, Democrat of Missouri, also attended the event, per Rod. In response to McCarthy's tweet announcing the cancellation of the event, Talib tweeted, Let the headlines read, McCarthy tries to erase Palestine, Palestine but fails. Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican of Louisiana, ranking member of the HELP Committee, told Rod that he wholeheartedly objected to the use of the committee's room for this divisive event. The Capitol ground should not be used as a pedestal to legitimize anti-Semitic bigotry, he said. A GOP spokesman also told Rod that Cassidy was unaware and not consulted in the chair's decision to permit the use for the of the committee room for this event. The New York Post reportedly said that they have a source close to Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, saying that the Senate Majority Leader was not aware that the Senate building was being used for the event. Senator Jackie Rosen, Democrat of Nevada, denounced the event in a statement to Rod. As Americans celebrate the 75th anniversary of the founding of Israel, calling, on, calling the establishment of the world's only Jewish state a catastrophe is deeply offensive, and I strongly disagree with holding the event on Capitol Hill. Israel was founded as a refugee for the Jewish people seeking millennia of anti-Semitic persecution and violence. Let me be absolutely clear, the United States is and always will remain a stalwart ally of the state of Israel. Anti-Defamation League 
CEO Jonathan Greenblatt tweeted, It is disgraceful that at Senator Sanders allowed this event by at Representative Rashida to be held in our nation's capital. Real conversations are needed around a path to peace, but not with groups and individuals who espouse anti-Semitism. We call on the Senate to condemn this event. William Daroff, CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, tweeted, It is outrageous that the hallowed halls of Congress would be used to promulgate the false narratives, historical revisionism of Israel haters. Clearly, they are more interested in demonizing the Jewish state than fostering understanding and common ground in the pursuit of peace. Dumisani, Washington, founder and CEO of the Institute for a Black Solidarity with Israel, tweeted, with an official hashtag Nakba anti-Israel event being held at the state capitol today, the U.S. government now fully reflects the anti-Semitism on its college campuses and universities, where these progressive Israel-hating political leaders are being produced. Israeli Cool Israel Advocacy Executive Director David Lang tweeted, Remember, this was happening as millions of at Bernie Sanders follow, fellow Jews were under attack from Islamic Jihad rockets being fired from hashtag Gaza. Bernie, you are a disgrace. Israeli Minister of Diaspora Affairs Amihai Chikli tweeted in response to Talib, Let's remember together the founding father of the Palestinian national movement, the Mufti Amin al-Husseini, a mass murderer and the architecture of the Nakba. He went on to outline the relationship between al-Husseini and Adolf Hitler before concluding, in 1946, the Holy War Army was established under the auspices of the Mufti and the Supreme Arab Committee of the Arabs of Palestine. It was the main fighting force in the first stages of Israel's War of Independence. Happily, this army established by an ally of the Nazis was destroyed, but its Sikh ideology is still with us. That was Rashid Talib Holds Nakba Event in Senate Building by Aaron Bandler, May 11, 2023. Okay, now here's an article from the California section. This is called JPEG Promotes Ambitious Policy Agenda at 2023 Capital Summit. JPEG Executive Director David Bocarsley told the more than 300 conference attendees that last year, JPEG succeeded in securing $140 million from the state budget toward their legislative priorities and helped pass 15 bills by Aaron Bandler, May 12, 2023. The Jewish Public Affairs Committee of California promoted an ambitious policy agenda at their 2023 Capital Summit on May 9th and 10th. The summit, which was sponsored by the Anti-Defamation League and the Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation, took place at the Sheraton Grand Sacramento Hotel. JPAC Executive Director David Bocarsley told the more than 300 conference attendees that last year, JPAC su succeeded in securing $140 million dollars from the state budget toward their legislative priorities and helped pass 15 bills. This year, the organization scored meetings with 103 legislative offices and added eight organizations to the JPAC coalition, putting the coalition's total at 32 organizations. Barkarsley hailed it as the largest single state coalition of Jewish organizations in the country. Additionally, a quarter of the state legislature was present on the opening night of the conference. Our community is realizing more and more how much power there is at the state level, Borkarsley said. 
JPAC's policy agenda, which Barkarsley described as ambitious, included lobbying for $80 million in security grants to protect nonprofit organizations from hate crimes, $3 million toward Holocaust and genocide education for K-12 schools, and $44 million for domestic and sexual violence prevention programs. JPEG also supported bills making it easier to build affordable housing on property owned by faith institutions and nonprofit colleges, increasing the CalFresh minimum from $23 to $50, and extending the time frame for critical case management services for new refugees beyond the federal government's 90-day limit. We take them on because they are a clear representation of our community's values, Karsley said. Lobbying groups organized by JPEG visited state legislatures at their offices on May 10, promoting the organization's legislative agenda. American Jewish Committee Los Angeles Regional Director Richard S. Hirschhout, who led uh, one of the lobbying groups, told the journal, It's so important to put a face to the Jewish community and to be able to relate one-on-one with members of the state assembly. We have found them to be receptive to the legislative initiatives that JPAC is putting forward because they ultimately reflect universal human values. And this is a public service that the Jewish community is doing by being here in Sacramento. The state budget was a theme throughout the conference, as the state is suddenly facing a $31.5 billion deficit after having a nearly $100 billion surplus this year, the year before. Cal Matters columnist Dan Walters told conference attendees that the state revenue fluctuates every year because California's burgeoning budget and progressive tax structure have caused the state to become more reliant on a handful of wealthy taxpayers who will generate their income from investment earnings. It's difficult to estimate from one year to the next how rich people are doing on their investments, Walters said, pointing out that during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, the state assumed that the economic downturn that year would result in lower revenue, so the state budget was lower. But that projection turned out to be inaccurate, as the state's wealthiest people did not suffer from COVID-19's economic impact. Consequently, there was a surplus, according to Walters. The 2022 surplus prompted the state government to balloon the budget, but this ended up being a miscalculation, as the Federal Reserve's higher interest rates resulted in lower earnings for the state's wealthiest taxpayers, Walter said, thus resulting in less revenue than expected. Shortly after the summit, Governor Ga- uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom, Democrat, proposed $10 million in his budget to nonprofit security grants on May 12. At a time where the governor had to make significant cuts to his agenda, proposing new funding for this program is a major statement of support for our community, Barkarsley said in an email summit to some of participants. And it's a testament to the impact you made at the summit. It's clear to me that the show of strength we exhibited this week influenced the governor's decision to support our community despite making cuts elsewhere. The issue of rising anti-Semitism was also brought up multiple times throughout the summit, as multiple speakers noted that the latest figures from the Anti-Defamation League released just before the summit started showing that there were 518 instances of anti-Semitism in California in 2022, a 41% increase from the year before. ADL Center on Extremism Vice President Oren Siegel pointed out 
that there were six extremist-related killings in California in 2022 and that the number of white supremacist propaganda incidents, such as dropping flyers on people's private property and unfurling banners across freeways, have exploded across California. Siegel attributed the rise in anti-Semitism to hate conspiracy theories and disinformation from being increasingly, being increasingly amplified in online space and to influencers like rapper Kanye West, who has more followers than Jews on the planet. State Assemblymember Isaac Bryant, Democrat of Culver City, argued that the spike in hate occurred during the two years of the COVID-19 pandemic and suggested we've got to force each other to have these conversations about equity and inclusion. Dan Schnur, a political communications professor at USC, UC Berkeley, and Pepperdine, and a journal columnist, told attendees that the latest ADL figures don't teach us anything we don't already know, but said that the way to address it is for the community to make new friends and move forward together. He then praised the California Legislative Jewish Caucus for doing a phenomenal job in forging relationships with other communities. The Jewish Caucus received plaudits throughout the summit from other speakers. Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, Democrat of Lakewood, one of the summit's keynote speakers, lauded the caucus for becoming an incredible force, not only within our caucus, but in our legislature. State Senator Nancy Skinner, Democrat of Berkeley, told attendees that the Jewish caucus would counter anti-abortion forces, citing God as reason to ban abortions by saying that is not what our religion teaches. Assemblymember Mia Bonta, Democrat of Oakland, the wife of State Attorney General Rob Bonta, Democrat, said the caucus has had a you lead, we have your back mentality toward issues like reproductive rights and gender affirming care. Assemblymember Scott Weiner, Democrat of San Francisco, who co-chairs the Jewish caucus, told attendees that we face so many challenges as a community and that we know anti-Semitism is there and our job as a caucus uh, to have the community's back. Weiner's fellow co-chair, Assemblymember Jesse Gabriel, Democrat of Woodland Hills, declared that while it is an especially complicated time for our community, the community is united. He added that it's gratifying that the caucus and community is a big part of the policy conversation in Sacramento. Rakarsley told the journal, what makes JPAC so special is the diversity of our coalition, which was put on display at JPAC Capital Summit. We convened over 300 Jewish community leaders of all backgrounds, representing a beautiful cross-section of California's Jewish life. Our delegation included leaders of dozens of major Jewish organizations that are working to combat anti-Semitism and hate, advance civil rights, and provide a wide range of social and human services to vulnerable Californians. And we all traveled to our state capital to uplift a bold, impactful, and unified policy agenda. It was clear that the 103 legislative offices we met with were inspired by our commitment to our Jewish values and our ability to come together across differences. I could not be more proud of this growing movement, and I know that the impact of this year's summit will reverberate in the halls of Sacramento long before, beyond our two days together. Special thanks to the leaders of the Senate and Assembly, Pro Tem Tony Atkins, Democrat of San Diego, and Speaker Rendon, to co-chairs Assemblymember Jesse Gabriel and Senator Scott Weiner and the entire Legislative Jewish Caucus and to all of our amazing legislators and experts who addressed the summit and made it so special, he added. 
That was JPEC Promotes Ambitious Policy Agenda at 2023 Capital Summit by Aaron Bandler, May 12, 2023. Okay, let's turn to the columnist section here, and we go to this one, How Representative Rashida Tlaib's Nakba event hurts the Palestinians. For many Arabs living in Israel today, a more accurate word than Nakba would be Fursa, or Opportunity, by David Suisa, May 9, 2023. Representative Rashida Tlaib's Democrat of Michigan pitches herself as a champion of the Palestinian cause, but you wouldn't know it from the anti-Israel event she is hosting on May 10 at the Capitol Visitor Center to commemorate the catastrophe of the founding of Israel. May 15 marks 75 years since the beginning of the Nakba, which means catastrophe, the event, the event page states. Tlaib must have known that hosting an event describing Israel as a catastrophe would provoke the usual pushback. She continues to serve as a cheerleader for demonization and delegitimization of the Jewish state, Rabbi Abraham Cooper of the Simon Weisenthal Center told the Free Beacon. The real catastrophe is Representative Tlaib and her allies' refusal to engage with Zionism in good faith, Leora Rez, Executive Director of Stop Anti-Semitism, said to the New York Post. Brooke Goldstein, who heads the Lawfare Project and co-founded End Jew Hatred, tweeted, it's one thing to spew hateful rhetoric. It's another to use U.S. Congress to do so. Rashidi Tlaib shouldn't be permitted to hold the Nakba Day event on U.S. Con Congress property. As far as I can tell, however, no one has challenged the, using the word catastrophe to describe the impact Israel has had on Arabs. That word is not just hateful rhetoric, it's highly misleading. For many Arabs living in Israel today, a more accurate word would be fursa, or opportunity. A March 2022 report on Israel's Arab population from the prestigious Israel Democracy Institute concluded that Arab society in Israel is being revolutionized by the rise in the standard of living, life expectancy, and education, along with the decline in fertility rates, changes to family structures, and an increasing desire to realize individual aspirations at the expense of collective values. In other words, Arabs living in the Jewish state today have rights, freedoms, and opportunities they would be hard-pressed to find in Arab nations of the region where authoritarianism is the rule. How is that a catastrophe? Representative Tlaib that, uh, knows that she must hide this good news at all costs. It would undermine her narrative to make Israel the chronic oppressor and the Palestinians the chronic victims. She knows that as long as she can associate Israel with the word Nakba, she wins. The problem, of course, is that, is that her people lose. By freeing history, freezing history in 1948, she freezes the helpless status of her people and gives them no hope. By covering up the remarkable progress that has occurred for Arab Israelis over the decades, she keeps her people frozen in time, paralyzed by the drug of permanent grievance. If she truly wanted what is best for her people, her message would be not one of ca catastrophe, but one of opportunity. For starters, she would urge Palestinian leadership to do for Palestinians what Israel has done for Arab, Arab Israelis. In fact, if every Arab nation would treat their own people the way Israel treats its Arab minority, it would transform the region. Talib's no fool. She knows all that. She sees Arabs graduate from top, the top medical schools in Israel. She sees Arabs on the Israeli Supreme Court and Arab representatives yell with the best of them in the Knesset. 
She knows that the Napa of 1948 is really the FURSA of 2023. Maybe next year she could organize a FURSA day and invite Arab Israelis to speak about the many opportunities they have enjoyed in Israel. That would be a catastrophe only for those who hate Israel. Update. Speaker McCarthy tweeted on May 9 that in place of the Nakba event, he will hold a bipartisan discussion to honor the 75th anniversary of the U.S.-Israel relationship. That was how Representative Rashida Tlaib's Nakba event hurts the Palestinians by David Suisa, May 9, 2023. All right, here's another one. Hat tricks from a Jewish ambassador. <clears throat> I tried to be a good ambassador for Judaism around the world. But wearing my religion on my sleeve, or my head, or on my plate, gets tricky. By Judy Groon, May 10, 2023. I try to be a good ambassador for Judaism out in the world, but wearing my religion on my sleeve, or my head, or on my plate, gets tricky. Years ago, I was invited to speak at the Irma Bombeck Writers Conference at the University of Dayton. Friday night before the program began, at a dinner for conference speakers and VIPs, I'd also been asked to say a few words about how Irma's work had influenced me. I had short, amusing remarks locked and loaded, but there was a microphone at the podium which I couldn't use on Shabbat. What would I do when they called my name? Thankfully, as I was called Divine Inspiration, it tapped me on the shoulder. As the speakers before me had done, I first walked behind the podium and positioned myself at the microphone. I waited two seconds, looked at the audience, and shrugged before walking around to stand in front of the podium. I've got four teenagers at home, I said with an exaggerated sigh and a gesturing helplessly. I don't need a microphone. The audience laughed and I was home free. Thank you, God, I said silently. The next night, I faced my most embarrassing situation at a kosher traveler among non, as a kosher traveler among non-Jews. At a banquet for all 350 attendees, I stopped. I talked shop with congenial table mates who were all enjoying their trife dinners of warm rolls, baked chicken, whipped potatoes, and green beans almodine. Meanwhile, I was summoning all my bicep and tricep strength to hack my way through the building-grade layers of aluminum foil and thick plastic rack protecting the kosher meal ordered for me. For some reason, my kosher meal on Friday night didn't require Herculean strength to unwrap. The caterer had provided feeble plastic cutlery, which I needed when I needed a machete. Some guests stole furtive, sympathetic glances at my, my way as the waiter hovered, trying to pour non-kosher wine into the wine glass I shielded with my hand. Clearly, I looked like I needed a drink, probably two. This never would have happened in L.A. or any other more sophisticated Jewish community. I embrace my religious identity and hate for people to think that Jewish living, including keeping kosher, is such a burden because it wasn't. This was beyond cringeworthy. What had this catering caterer been smoking? When my table mates were tucking in their dessert, God had mercy. I finally broke through the layers of plastic. All eyes were now on my disposable plate to see what treasure had been revealed. My mortification deepened when I saw a bland-looking and shockingly small portion of salad, chicken, rice with peas, and roasted summer squash. I thought of all the, of the old jokes about a Jew complaining bitterly about a bad meal he was served at a restaurant, and then added, and such small portions, too. Fortunately, everyone was quickly distracted by the keynote speaker, Dave Barry, who had godlike status in this audience. 
I couldn't help but notice, though, the only, that only two people among the 350 of us wore any sort of hat. I was one of them. And a stylish Israeli-designed beret embroidered all around with tiny silver beads. The other women covered their head with a duck hat nearly uh, the size of a chimney. Logically, our hats did not belong to the same species of headwear. Irrationally, though, I feared that the ridiculousness of her hat might somehow taint my head covering worn as a sign of Jewish observance. Barry couldn't resist and asked the woman where she got her hat so that he could get one too. I held my breath for a moment. Would she feel insulted? But Barry was brilliant. His tone deftly blended kindness with a touch of disbelief. The duck hat where beamed with delight with his clever intention. Barry had made her feel honored. In the end, I couldn't help it if my table mates th uh, thought keeping kosher was nuts, but at least my hats uh, did, me did me proud. As a writer, I admired complimented uh, a, a writer I admired complimenting on on a mauve beret, which led her to endorsing my next book. As a volunteer ambassador for Judaism, I'm prepared not only to wear different hats, but also to face down awkward situations along the way. That was Hat Tricks from a Jewish Ambassador by Judy Grun, May 10, 2023. Judy Grun's most recent book is The Skeptic and the Rabbi Falling in Love with Faith. All right, here is one more. This is called Save Israeli Democracy. While Jews everywhere have a stake in Israel, to call for international pressure from non-Jews and from foreign governments is unseemly and dangerous. By Gregory Smith, May 10, 2023. In cities around the world, including New York, Chicago, Miami, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Berlin, Munich, Oslo, Paris, Rome, and, Aleve, and even Sydney, Australia, demonstrators opposing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's proposals for judi judicial reforms have taken to the streets holding signs reading, Save Israeli Democracy. Two of Netanyahu's proposed reforms, which are arguably designed, at least in part, to keep him out of jail, are especially contentious and would have the most far-reaching effects. One affects how Supreme Court justices are appointed. The second permits the Knesset to override a Supreme Court ruling that strikes down legislation. Or the demonstrators argue, and may be correct, that Netanyahu's proposals are a threat to democracy because they give him too much power, they are wrong in how and where they are saying this. A bit of background. Israeli Supreme Court justices are appointed by a nine-member Judicial Selection Committee. At least five of its members, three Supreme Court justices and two Bar Association members, are themselves not popularly elected to any office. Since seven of the nine members of the committee must vote in favor of a Supreme Court candidate, control over appointment rests on the hands of persons who are not properly elected. Moreover, in its 1995 Bank Mizrahi decision in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court found the power to negate unreasonable Knesset legislation. The Knesset has no power to review that determination. Netanyahu argues that judges appointed in this fashion ought not to have such unfettered power. Netanyahu's proposals would reduce to five the votes needed to in the Judicial Selection Committee for a Supreme Court appointment and alter the committee composition so that the elected ruling coalition has an automatic majority of committee appointees. He would also enable the Knesset by a simple majority vote to override a Supreme Court finding of unconstitutionality. 
Although Netanyahu campaigned on these issues, critics argue that the proposed changes are undemocratic because they put all three branches of the government in the hands of the governing coalition. While this can be a risk, it is inherent in many parliamentary democracies, such as the United Kingdom, where there is no judicial power to oversee legislation, and the leader of the parliamentary coalition is typically the prime minister and head of the executive branch. The more compelling critique of Netanyahu's proposals is not that they are undemocratic, but too democratic, giving too much, giving too much ultimately unreviewable power to the popularly elected Knesset and potentially permitting a tyranny of the majority and the prime minister. The divisions in Israel are so dramatic between Arabs and Jews, religious and secular, the political left and the political right, the pro-Netanyahu camp and the anti-Netanyahu camp, that checks and balances to legislative and executive excesses are especially necessary. So although the demonstrators' critique is wrong, they are right to be concerned. But in organizing worldwide demonstrations in opposition to Netanyahu's proposals, the demonstrators are wrong in a fundamental way. For example, the organization Unacceptable, which describes itself as a grassroots movement launched by Israeli expats in support of a democratic Israel and has chapters around the world, supports the worldwide demonstrations. Its Palo Alto founder, Afir Gutelzon, declares the foundations of Israeli democracy are being changed and we call on American Jewish Americans and anyone who cares about Israeli democracy to join us. The call to anyone who cares, which is what the worldwide demonstrations are doing, undermines Israel and invites international intervention in its domestic affairs. Israel is a sovereign democratic state. How it chooses to organize its internal affairs is not a matter of in which foreign governments should intervene. While Jews everywhere have a stake in Israel, to call for international pressure from non-Jews and from foreign governments is seemly, unseemly and dangerous encouraging foreign governments to condition their relationships with Israel on how Israelis choose uh, to govern themselves. So don't demonstrate seeking to convince and involve foreign governments on not, or non-Jews worldwide. Demonstrate in Israel or in front of Israeli consulates to influence the Israeli government. Argue in Israel that and in Jewish publications the possible domestic repercussions when checks and balances are swept away. But don't damage Israel by bringing these arguments to people around the world. Don't invite non-Israelis and non-Jews as the demonstrators' signs declare to save Israeli democracy. Watch your words and where you express them. That was Save Israeli Democracy? Question mark by Gregory Smith, May 10, 2023. Mr. Smith is an appellate attorney in Los Angeles with law, the law firm of Lowenstein and Weatherwax and president of the Orthodox Synagogue Westwood Kehillah. All right, so let's conclude with some ads from the Marketplace section of JewishJournal.com. And as usual, to reserve your market Marketplace ad space, call 213-368-1661. Ad space reservation and ad material deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursday. And so we go to this one. Sinai, Los Angeles. One plot for sale in Gardens of Ramah, map 9A, lot 1072, unit 2. 
Asking price, $17,000 OBO, endowment and transfer included. Sinai price, $19,000. Call 818-665-9931. All right, we have this one right here. Hillside, a double companion crypt in sold-out location of Court of Matriarchs, while B row, row 2, space 8. Asking price, $18,000, all fees included. Hillside price, $21,735. Call 310-849-9162. Alright, so there's this one. Mount Sinai Memorial Park, two side-by-side -side single plots installed out section of Maimonides. Space uh, 263, side-by-side. Asking price, $45,000 OBO. Uh, transfer and endowment included. Mount Sinai price, $46,000 to $48,000. Call 310-710-2332. And folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world... Find it all right here with with regards to what's going on in Israel, in our own democracy, or even in the sports and entertainment world. Find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace. <laughs>